0: Now, so much for consciousness. Now there's another problem that I see as almost the same uh, that concerns a lot of modern philosophers, and that is they have a special word called qualia, and they use this wonderful word qualia to refer to the character of sensations. So, for example, we can say an object is red, or another object is green. Now, about ten percent of people don't make that distinction very well, because, uh, particularly men, because red-green color blindness is is uh, rather more common than most people who don't have it realize. But, uh, but so that, that's an example of something. But. What many people believe, or like to think, is that there's something very simple, clear, and absolute about the quality of a sensation, like something hurts, or something is red, or something is hard or soft. Now that's not a bad example. And so they say, well, how do you explain the existence of characteristics like certain colors and certain sensations, and uh, how do you explain the difference between pain and pleasure, and why, what are these qualities that seem so simple, absolute, and clear that you can't explain them? And the answer is, uh, you can't explain them because you're too lazy. There aren't any such things. The process by which the nervous system discovers or identifies something as red is extremely complicated. Uh, For example, if you have a visual system where there's one color here and another color here, uh, then it can be very difficult if there's nothing else in the scene to identify those colors because all you can see is the difference. Uh, And in fact, uh, Edwin Land discovered that in many cases you can't identify you don't have the sensation of a definite color unless there are three regions that are optically, that have optically different colors coming together. If they're just two regions, then your sense of what color the two regions are uh, can keep changing or can be different from uh, what it would be if, if you put it on a table with a third color. So it turns out that these qualia are not absolute and as far as I can see, they depend on all sorts of complicated processes running in between. So the sense that you say something is pink or something is orange uh, seems very immediate, but that's because let's take another example. How do you, why did you say the word orange? Everybody knows the words they just said because one of the thirty or forty meanings of that word consciousness is remembering what you've recently done. But nobody knows how you, what process caused you to emit the word orange. Is there just a connection between a color receptor in the retina and a thing in your speech center that produces the word orange? Uh, No, there's no reason to think anything is that simple. There's probably fifteen or twenty different layers of processes he was an intuitive mathematician didn't couldn't do any real mathematics but he guessed he was remarkably good at guessing guessing what was might be true and so there were a few of us who hung around and proved that what he conjectured was right but uh, but i have ghosts because of this. So if I'm stuck on a problem, sometimes I imagine Andrew Gleason saying, well, you're wasting your time, try something else. Or I have the... I used to hang around John Cage a little bit and He's one of my ghosts, I didn't know him that well, but if I'm doing something he's saying, that's too pretentious. (laughs) And sometimes I have the voice of McCulloch saying, you should make that more grand. It's really show why it's important. So McCulloch is one of the people who watches me when I write and says, that's either that's too pretentious or not pretentious enough but do you have people like that
1: I think I sometimes say it's a joke between me and my friend Vitek we see, he he made this up which was what would Feynman do
0: Exactly for mathematics I say what would Gleason do and That's the advice I give students, but they don't listen much. And that's if you're talking to someone like Feynman or Gleason who says something, what the students do is they take notes and write it down and they try to remember what he said, but what you should say is, how did he think of that? And then you can go and ask him. For example, to understand modern physics, uh, there are about 20 little well-defined problems in mathematics or areas of mathematics that you have to understand, acceleration and velocity, the kinds of mechanics that began with Galileo and Newton uh, can be compressed into a, uh, a small book called Classical Mechanics. And there. are uh, you can take a course in college and learn about gyroscopes and uh, all sorts of different kinds of machinery, and in some sense that stuff is very compact, and it ends up with just a few principles. The same for electricity. In the late uh, 19th century, uh, the uh, great scientist Clerk Maxwell, Clark Maxwell. <laughs> Clark Maxwell uh, found four laws. Just as Newton found three laws for mechanics that explained most ordinary phenomena And in, in, to some extent, Maxwell found four equations or principles that explained electricity and magnetism. And that was a wonderful thing. So now most of everyday physics could be partly explained at least by these seven laws, the three Newton and four Maxwell, uh, around early 1900s, Einstein squashed the Maxwell equations uh, to be one or two rather than four. That was a amazing little bit of progress because he discovered that electricity and magnetism are can be seen as the same thing from different points of view, a completely unexpected uh, kind of development. So uh, physics got simpler and simpler and science was wonderful and beautiful, and chemistry was beginning to be understood too. Uh, Things went, got into trouble in the 1920s when instruments became, new kinds of instruments were developed that showed that there were a lot of much less predictable events when you started to look at very small things. The uh, part of science called quantum mechanics uh, started to appear and raised Really difficult questions that uh, we're still making progress on and uh, today, so it's been that sort of set things back for almost a hundred years by making the world seem much more complicated than it had after Newton and Einstein. It's four hundred million years since the first multicellular animals appeared, and then we have a hundred million years of of evolving toward, toward fish and getting vertebrae and things like that, and then it's a hundred million more years of, the fish becoming amphibians and uh, moving onto the land, and also of course, continuing to evolve in the sea, and then it's a hundred million years of, then they're amphibians and a hundred million years of being reptiles, uh, land living animals, and, and then the last hundred million years the uh, the mammals started to appear, the warm-blooded animals with and all through this process, the nervous system was becoming more elaborate and complicated and uh, having more different parts of the spinal cord and brain. And in the last five or six million years, the our ancestors, the orangutan and the the um, gorilla and the baboons and the chimpanzees, and we split from the chimpanzees pretty much uh, in the last 50 or hundred fifty million years or less. And all of this involved developing more and more complicated structures in the brain. And so to me it's sort of pathetic that people say, and the wonderful thing is that it suddenly became conscious and this new thing appeared instead of 30 different things. And so I'm sort of ashamed of my colleagues who say, well, this is a philosophically difficult problem. How could, what is consciousness? It's not matter, it's not material. Where did it come from? It's kind of inexplicable spirit. Surely it's something that can't be explained scientifically. The answer is uh, that they're absolutely right, because there isn't any such thing. Yes, the society of mind was rather successful. Uh, I've had uh, messages from people all over the world over the years saying this changed my life and and I think the reason for its success is first the chapters are short and each chapter has one main idea or most of them do and also the vocabulary I trimmed so that it doesn't have many words that a ninth grader doesn't know. So it's uh, it's a pre-college book in the sense that it's vocabulary, except for a dozen words, new words, um, it's pretty limited. But the other thing is that the book itself is, illustrates the theory of the mind, that that the way the mind works, it might have a couple of hundred Different pieces of machinery, each of which occasionally interact with some of the others, and so the book itself is a, tries to be a, an analogy with how I think the brain works. Namely, here's this thing that it does; it's good at this kind of thing, and every now and then it calls on this one to take over or criticize itself, and so forth. And um, so. The new book, The Emotion Machine, is, has been out for three years and I've gotten a rather small number of messages saying, this was very exciting to read and said, they're very respectful and they say, this looks like it has very important ideas and I'm all the, already halfway through it. And The letters about the, that's The Emotion Machine book, the letters about the Society of Mind book says, I couldn't put the thing down and I read it every year and it's changed my life. And I'm sure that the ideas in the new book are actually better, but they're harder. And I hope somebody comes along and rewrites it someday. Incidentally, Michael Crichton helped me uh, on the first book and he read the first 100 pages and had quite a lot of suggestions. He took out all the varies. I didn't realize that if you say something is very important, that's much weaker than saying something is important. But uh, Michael took out a lot of qualifying words that... and he had uh, several technical ideas. I've forgotten exactly which ones they were, but uh, he actually had some important contributions that I rewrote into the book and forgot to credit him with. One of the big steps in my career was that I was a student at Harvard. I took all sorts of courses, mostly science. I managed to, you know, you take four courses a term and you're, you have eight terms. Two terms per year. So that's only 32 courses, and I think I managed to get through Harvard with 27 or 28 science courses. And then uh, what do you do about the rest? Two were philosophy, which was a course given by Willard Quine, who's a logician, so that's that's actually mathematics. Philosophy hides that way. Uh, probably three of them were music, which is certainly not considered science, but there I was. and There was a young professor, composer, Irving Fine, who taught music, and I think I took three of his courses, and he gave me a C in each one, but he thought I was maybe the most talented of the students anyway. I had an extraordinary run of good fortune, I think I've mentioned this before, when I was in college, of just meeting people who knew a lot about exactly what I happened to be interested in at the moment. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I was very strongly influenced by my accidental encounter with the great book by Nicholas Ryshevsky called Mathematical Biophysics. I just happened to find it in a library and it had articles about applying mathematics to different aspects of biology. There would be a chapter on how does a cell divide or how what kind of physical system c- could cause a cell to contract at the equator and break into two parts without spilling all its contents? Just lovely little questions that any child could see. That's, that's a question. How could it work? How could a nerve fiber conduct a signal? Uh, chemical reactions might seem too slow to go at 100 meters per second, so or 10 meters per second, or whatever it is. So what's the trick? This book was full of different applications of ordinary mathematics to biological problems. and I've never seen anything like that. And one of them was about learning machines and neurons by McCulloch and Pitts. I remember one day some teacher was talking about me when I was, they didn't know I was in the room, one of them said maybe he's another J. Robert Oppenheimer. So that seemed very strange to me because I'd never heard of a person whose first name was a single letter. Uh, and I didn't know what that meant for some years later, but but uh, he had been a student at Fieldston School <clears throat> a few years before. and. Of course, when I was at graduate school at Princeton, I met him later, and he took me to lunch with Einstein and Gödel and visitors like that, von Neumann people from time to time. Anyway, it does concern me that, <coughs> that the opportunities for research in my field are not as good as they were when I was a youngster. Uh, it was wonderful that uh, if I asked George Miller uh, how could we get some support to to build a learning machine like this one he said well he'll find a way and uh, a few weeks later he told me some money had appeared from some magic source and uh, we could go ahead. Uh, it's much harder now and if a young person wants to work on a new field that's not very promising yet because there's there's a prospect maybe 40 years before it'll start to pay off, it's almost impossible to get support for that. So we need to, we, we need somehow to develop better long-range institutions for, for research. I'd like to see many more people working on artificial intelligence. Uh, I've been complaining a lot that what happens is that this field tends to get wrapped up in fads so that in the 1950s and 60s let's say the 1960s, um, my laboratory at MIT and Newell and Simon's laboratory at uh, Carnegie Mellon University were sort of, and Stanford, there were three main groups, each of them had about 10 or 15 people and we were very productive. Now, uh, I don't see very many more places like that. The ones that existed are contracting a little bit. But I see very large numbers of people following, what should I call the monotheistic fads. Interesting. I have an idea for a machine that will be intelligent. It will work by making predictions and doing such and such. That's a nice idea. And... uh, There's a group uh, trying to make that kind of machine. There are many people who say, all we need is a set of perhaps 10,000 or 10 million rules. And in each situation, the machine has to find which rule will apply to that and make the situation better. And so in the 1980s, there was a great fad in making rule-based intelligent machines. And those turned out to be quite good at solving some problems like airline reservations and uh, in some cases even stock market predictions. But of course, that only works for a while until the other people get the same program. Uh, I find most people say, well, it's either this or that. And I'm always inclined to look for a third thing. It's not like Hegel's dialectic and synthesis where you have two things and then you <clears throat> try to find a third thing that's made of both, but uh, I think I'm always, if somebody says, is it left or right, I'm always looking for a third way. And, uh, of course, most of the time you can't find one, but uh, every now and then I get a new theory because I found that the, some community has gotten stuck making a distinction the joke I made in that Society of Mind book was complaining that there wasn't any word in English, at least, for tristinction or triference. And uh, then I started to look at the world of children, and we don't give children triplets of things. There's, there's, uh, Everyone has two shoes and two hands and two feet, and the interesting thing, if you look at child's development of numbers. Children get the idea of two when they're two years old, very usually, and a three-year-old counts to three and then they suddenly take off and go further. But it, it's a whole year for, for a young child to get from having words for two and words for three. The, I never made a scientific study of this, but uh, it would be interesting if there were more toys that like Lego is square, but Tinker Toy has triangles. And I'd like to see more. Could you adapt Lego so that it had more triangular structures? Well, then it would be harder to make things at first, but easier later.
1: Did you teach yourself this way of thinking, or, or, or is it did it just it's just how you're made? Or
0: well, I think the the. Uh, trying to think of several musical things at once is I assumed that everyone did it and I don't remember ever talking to anyone about it but my father was always playing two part inventions and once in a while he'd uh, try to play some three part Bach thing but usually he was just doing two but but it seemed to me that that was the interesting music around and most uh, most popular music doesn't have two things or one of them is a constantly repeating thing in the background and it's not so interesting. I don't remember ever talking to anyone about it.
1: But you love music. Hmm.
0: I'm not sure what that means. I just did it. <laughs> did I? I liked counterpoint. But one thing that they couldn't learn was to count the number of objects in a picture. It's just turned out that that was. Uh, because of rather obscure mathematical features of the n- concept of counting, that uh, a reinforcement neural network of the type that we many people were interested in just couldn't do that. In order to make a machine that can count, you need a machine that has internal loops inside of circular causality, and you can't make a machine that uh, just Passes signals from one layer to another, processing them in a kind of linear form. Well, it took us several years to prove that for certain neural networks, and uh, although we published all of this around 1970, uh, there's still some more things to prove about it. And for some reason, uh, nobody has developed. This, this was a field called perceptrons. And some rumor started to spread that by reinforcing the machine in a slightly different way it could overcome these limitations. So uh, the whole world of neural network people seem to believe that uh, this problem has been escaped and that we were wrong in saying that there was no way these machines could learn that. And because of this false rumor there hasn't been any further progress in understanding the limitations of neural networks with many layers but without loops. So one reason I'm annoyed at my colleagues in in this uh, particular field of psychological theories is that they believe these rumors without actually looking at the original problem and seeing that it's still there. I don't think it mattered because almost everyone was Jewish. (laughs) Having lived in New York, it uh, was—no, it was never significant. I don't remember ever being in an environment where there were significant anti-Semitic Influences, but I know that my family was always aware of this problem, and I think one of the reasons why they moved me from the high school of Science to Andover was to get into the out of the Jewish mainstream because there was some concern about that. but it never touched me. Uh, There wasn't such a community. I was at Princeton from 1951 to 54, and I was part of a community that indeed met every day pretty much because in the math department at Princeton there was a common room, and The total number of students was rather small. They admitted maybe six or seven per year, and people would stay four or five years or more, so there was maybe thirty graduate students and ten professors, which is a rather remarkable ratio. And so almost all the students knew almost all the other students and professors, and we almost all were hanging around this common room, which is fairly big, and every day pretty much. And I would spend most of my time talking to John Nash and Lloyd Shapley and Martin Shubik and Herb Forrester and three or four other mathematicians with different interests and some of the professors. And. When something came up, uh, we would talk about it, and then the next day or two, somebody might have made some real progress or everybody decided it was a waste of time, and so that was a small community. Some troubles appeared, and the picture of this wonderfully developing science, it was called cybernetics in the late 1940s the idea of machines that, had, that behaved as though they had goals and purposes, to some small extent, and all sorts of mathematical theories of that and how that might be used for machines. In the 1970s, we had made progress on getting machines to understand the meanings of some words and sentences and a certain amount of linguistics. But strangely, by the 1980s, A lot of institutions that thought that they were working on new advanced theories of psychology seem to be going backwards and looking for theories of thinking that were more like Newton's laws, going back. can I find three principles to guide learning rather than three or four hundred. If you look at the, what we know about the function of the human brain, and my favorite example is to take a big book on neurology and look at the index, you'll find the names of maybe 200 or more different parts of the brain that have been identified at least uh, for the present as being involved with slightly different or grossly different functions. So some parts are clearly involved with language and others are clearly involved with vision and hearing and different sensory systems. Uh, some parts are involved with planning ahead for the motor activities and so forth. And we know that you don't want to try to describe what the brain does by anything like three laws or seven laws because that wouldn't account for why there are more than a hundred different, different uh, kinds of computations going on in the brain. I have a lot of friends in neuroscience who say, Oh, don't worry about that. There's a lot of evidence that all of the different areas of the brain are basically very similar. They have almost the same structure. They're just in different places and just connected to different things. And uh, yes, you could say that. Uh, you could say all people are almost the same because they're all between four and eight feet high, and they're they're all weigh between fifty and five hundred pounds, and there are very few differences. And so it makes me nervous to see neuroscience moving in the direction of saying, look, all the different parts of the brain, they're all made of the same kinds of cells, neurons, maybe axon, maybe uh, glial cells, and so forth. So, you know, in fact, there's a very popular theory that says almost all parts of the brain are practically the same, and I don't want to go into that. But it's clearly, to me, what you want is th- to elaborate theories of the differences. Why are some people so much better at some things than others? And can you correlate that with small differences between parts of the brain? Not, not saying, oh, they must all be doing virtually the same thing. Maybe they are, but it's the differences that matter. Conscious is the word we use for all the different things we don't yet understand about the mind. And uh, the sooner we get rid of such words… Now, these words are very useful and we can't get rid of them. For example, suppose somebody kills somebody else by accident. They didn't intend to. Well, then there's no use punishing them unless they're prone to do it all the time. In that case, uh, you have to isolate them. But we need the word consciousness for ethical reasons, for fooling people into behaving the way we want. So we make the distinction between a decision somebody makes because of a complicated process we can't understand, but which we can interfere with. So you see it's a legal and it's a social and an economic term that we really need. How do we control people? Well, we have to distinguish between the things that they do because of using these 30 or 40 different mental processes because we can teach them not to or we can warn them not to. Uh, Other kinds of processes that are lower level and involve less machinery are harder to interfere with, and so uh, legally we uh, There's no point in punishing them for things that in some sense weren't intentional, that they couldn't control. and uh, So I'm saying that the reason the word consciousness is so popular is not because it has a scientific importance, it's because it has a political and social and economic importance. And I'm ashamed of my colleagues who don't understand the difference between cause and opportunity. It's it's maybe we don't have the right words to distinguish between the ways we have we need for describing people for different purposes. I started to read about theories of learning and the prominent scientist, the greatest reputation was uh, Burris F. Skinner, Boris Fred Skinner, we all called him Fred, who had written a book in the, I don't know, 1930s or 40s, about uh, how animals could be trained to learn by giving punishment and reward, and uh, particularly extinction, which is just not rewarding them, which is more, if you punish an animal for uh, making a response you don't like, that will quickly make the response disappear, but shortly after you go away, it'll, it'll start trying it again, and uh, it turns out that if you extinguish a response you don't like by punishing an animal, then when you disappear, the animal may act as though he's learned to do it even more in the meantime. It's a phenomenon that Skinner discovered, maybe hadn't been known. So the way to permanently extinguish a reaction it's better simply to ignore it when the animal does it and not give it a reward. Anyway, he discovered a large number of things like that. And, uh, of course, uh, earlier scientists like Watson in in America and Pavlov in Russia had discovered many things like that in around the turn of the century, 1900. And lots of people had followed Pavlov and done experiments with dogs and rats and things and pigeons. But Skinner was the first person to move this from a sort of anecdotal science to a very systematic science. And so he had done lots of research with rats and pigeons where they're in a box which is completely isolated from the world, no sound and no light except for the stimuli he wanted. And so he's doing scientific experiments with very good controls. Whereas uh, we have a movie of Pavlov training dogs and it's just in a big laboratory and there are lots of other dogs in cages around and it's not so systematic. I don't think it was an important part then except that uh, since people were going to Japan and getting killed in this period, it was a great relief and for several days after the news came out, I was convinced that uh, that this was actually a, f- a hoax because Hiroshima was a port city. And so I assumed that, in fact, somebody had equipped a barge with a few thousand tons of TNT, just as the cliché went, and they had slipped this barge into the harbor and then they flew a little airplane over and dropped something and set off this bomb. And so I assumed this was a great trick for fooling the Japanese into thinking we had an atomic bomb. But Nagasaki wasn't so accessible. So uh, I think many people must have wondered why? Why did we drop two bombs? Why wasn't one enough? And my first thought was that. <clears throat> It was to convince them that it wasn't a hoax. A few years later, then I met Oppenheimer for the first time when I was in graduate school at Princeton, and he was very hospitable and tragic. interesting. I can't remember, or my representation of early years is, there's home and things one did there, and there's school, and there's no third world. There's the world, well, hobbies, and I was always building things, and maybe... With blocks as a child. I remember a few strange scenes. For example, an image that I have repeated many times is building a tower out of Tinker Toys. Tinker Toys are these wonderful objects made of little round spools with holes in them and little round sticks. And you make things by putting the sticks in the holes, and it's sort of the opposite of Lego, because if you... Lego became popular but it's bricks and you can only have right angles. And to make something strong you have to just pile on a lot of things because with Lego blocks there's really no way to make a triangle. With Tinker Toy, it's almost the opposite because Tinker toy spools and sticks are kind of optimal because you can make triangles with three sticks and three spools, and a triangle is terribly strong. The reason is it can't change its shape without changing the length of the stick. If you make a square, then, then it can do this, it wobbles. I often wonder how many modern children don't understand the strength of structures because all the toys they grew up with were blocks and Legos. Legos plugged together and you cannot make a triangle. So it's a strange world and we could trace the decline of American inventiveness perhaps to, to this revolution. The other toy was erector sets or the English Meccano set, which was almost the same, but higher quality, and I was addicted to those. And in fact, even today, if I need to make something quickly, I'll look for my Meccano set, number 10 Meccano set, uh, but it's not home, it's at my uh, son Henry's house, so that is my grandchildren can play with it but that was a world that i lived in if i wanted to build something i could make something quickly out of these construction sets There's another, there was another swedish one called fac which was more like tinker toy and it had clamps and rods and between the erector and meccano sets which allowed you to build structures with beams and cross braces and the fac sets and so forth, we, where you could make pulleys and gears work very well. With that kind of equipment, a child could build engineering prototypes of, of rather complicated things, which are almost impossible today for a child to build because all the child has is Lego, which makes it very hard to get gears to and pulleys to work, so it's a it's a curious thing that the toys became more sophisticated, but more realistic and less flexible.
1: What about um, this? Uh, you did lots of interesting things at school. Like one of them was to do with chemistry. You had a teacher called Herbert Zim, I, I gather. And wonder.
0: Yes, he was a It turned out he was, uh, later, became a a high official in the Museum of Natural History. But he was a teacher at the Fieldston School. And I remember I had some idea of making something because I had read a chemistry book. Oh, it was it was to be ethyl mercaptan, which is uh, two ethyl groups with a sulfur, I think. And it would be interesting to make because it was supposed to be have a terrible odor. And if you made even a few milligrams, you could stink up the whole building. So he said, well, how would you make it? And I think I had read that, well, you could first make ethyl chloride, which wasn't so difficult, and then you would do something that would replace the chlorines by the sulfur. And uh, actually, I don't remember how this synthesis worked, but uh, this must have been fourth grade, and it was quite clear what you had to do. And Herbert Sims said, "Well, that sounds pretty good." And uh, well, why don't you try it? And he gave me a little room with the right equipment and even a vacuum hood. To so, but I had to make the ethyl alcohol first, so I had to ferment something with yeast and whatever it was, and it was a long process, and then uh, i have forgotten the synthesis, but at some point then I Made the alcohol into ethyl chloride, and it instantly evaporated and all disappeared, because it's extremely volatile. And I'm sure Herbert Zim knew that um, I would never get to the last step in this process and stink up the whole school. So I, I admire his uh, his understanding this plan, but. No sooner did the ethyl chloride start to appear than it, you could see it vanish as soon as you opened the bottle or whatever it was. I, I don't remember anything about this except the narrative. But, but that was the great thing about that school. If you had some idea, some teacher might help you do it.
1: This was the same school that Oppenheimer was at. As you that mentioned. was the
0: school he had been at a few years before. When I met him, we swapped a couple of stories, but I can't remember any details. He had, he was now at the Institute for. So I didn't know him during the the atomic bomb days. Was b- before my time, but the uh, being at Princeton, you could just the Institute for Advanced Study is just walking distance. So
1: did you used to go down there and see him?
0: A few times. Hmm. But we ran into some strange unexpected problems. For example, in the in that wonderful period starting in the nineteen sixties, we had a couple of programs that were really seemed that we had a couple of programs that seemed quite promising as steps toward understanding language and making machines that could communicate with people about ordinary things. Of course, it was easy to get computers to communicate about highly technical things, because in a sense, things that are highly technical and advanced are usually much simpler than the things that you encounter as a ordinary person in the ordinary world. The things I remember, of course, are not things I remember because I remember remembering them. and Nobody's been able to trace very reliable memories of children earlier than about two or three years of age, because uh, when you try to verify these recollections They're often wrong or if you interview the person, the person remembers remembering them from time to time and so forth. So I have some unreliable memories of playing in a sandbox a lot when my mother was a student of something, social work or whatever. Vassar College but this is a synthetic image I think because when I think about it I remember putting sand in a pail and inverting it and that could have happened any time in early childhood and so I don't think I have any good memories. I can barely remember a few events in grade school and I remember a few things about the home. My father was a surgeon, eye surgeon, ophthalmology, but he played piano a lot and he could tie knots with one hand and I asked him why he played piano so much and he once said that it improves one's finger dexterity and if you're an eye surgeon you have to be very good at manipulating small things fairly quickly and that's all I remember about that. Except that we had a player piano and I used to imitate things that my father did like making up little box sounding etudes or fugues or pieces, and it seemed to me that this was a natural thing to do. And I remember much later talking to other children at school and discovering that they didn't usually have music in their head and they actually had to have some phonograph or something to play music in order to hear it, which seemed odd to me. So my memory of early years is just full of little snapshots of taking things apart and Walking with friends, and but nothing coherent, and I can't reconstruct the exact layout of rooms in in early homes or in schools. Uh, the world was mostly homes and schools, and a few outdoorses, and the important things were talking about ideas with friends, I think. So that's my childhood. What can we do? Yes, Sagan was not a science fiction writer at first, although he became one. And we were friends when he was a young professor at Harvard. And inexplicably, he never got promoted. So I think Harvard didn't appreciate the power of Carl Sagan's imagination and scientific ability. So eventually he moved to Cornell and he invited me to give some lectures there, which was a great experience to spend a week with him. And then as the space program expanded, I went on quite a few trips with Carl to visit various NASA bases and see what was happening. And uh, I was sort of informally involved in a fair number of uh, Pioneer and Voyager missions, just as as a sort of guest advisor. The problem with dealing with NASA was that if you had an idea, for example, on the Mars Viking Lander, which is a wonderful machine that worked quite well, it couldn't move once it had landed, but it had an arm that could dig and it had a little telescope. And at the last minute I realized that if you mounted a little convex lens on its wrist, then if it really wanted to zoom in on something, uh, since it had a camera on the main body, it could move its arm like that and look through this little magnifying glass and get maybe another five or 10 power, just the way Galileo could see the moons of Jupiter with, with a single lens. And the folks at NASA were very excited because this wouldn't cost much But the thing had to be launched in six months, and according to their schedule of planning, you couldn't make any change in that short a time, because if you put any little thing anywhere on the thing, you would have to completely recompute all the dynamics and check whether this would interfere with any other system. And even though everybody said they couldn't see how it could do any harm, Uh, experience had shown that everything can do lots of harm. But uh, traveling around with Carl Sagan, just visiting things that were happening, uh, it was like being in science fiction, not just reading it. That strange period around the beginning of the artificial intelligence laboratory where I spent a lot of time, sometimes I went on trips with this wonderful man. And Warren McCulloch had, at that time, he was already, he was one of the great pioneers of cybernetics. So, in fact, before Norbert Wiener uh, did wrote his famous book called Cybernetics, which I think came out in 1949, McCulloch had been working on neural networks, maybe the first, and he had a little group of, he had a 14-year-old prodigy named Walter Pitts in Chicago, and they worked out this paper that was published in 1943, so that's many years before uh, Norbert Wiener came on the scene and he had been a psychiatrist, a physician, neurologist, really, and started the neuroscience laboratory at MIT, and was a very dramatic, <clears throat> world-class actor uh, figure. And I went on trips with him, and and. Uh, It gave me a new view of the world because when McCulloch, I remember one day he said, I'm going to explain something to the psychologists. And he had a sort of grand view of of this, the importance of cybernetics, which was correct, so otherwise you would have said he was delusional. And so I went with him and it was a little meeting with about six or seven people. But he was on the stage, and I realized he was talking to the whole world. Normally, people are talking to their audience, but uh, he would have very elaborate constructions and beautiful ways of saying things. But I'd never met anyone who for whom all the world was a stage you could i think some as someone put it and <clears throat> Uh, from that I got some sense that you shouldn't waste people's time with things that aren't very important. Of course nobody nobody could live out such a commandment, but I must have spent most of a year just hanging around him and trying to understand how he could see such importance in ordinary things. So in a way it's like Feynman who, look at a little wave on the water and understand how the universe works. And McCulloch was very much like that for psychological things. He hated Freud because in retrospect, I think, because Freud was the best psychologist before him. And, And you know, Freud actually invented various forms of artificial intelligence and unlike the behaviorists, Freud Thought of the mind is really a rather complicated thing, not not just a little feedback loop or something. And and imagined that it had many different structures which weren't all compatible with one another. And so he, uh, in retrospect, he had the first society of mind because it wasn't just the conscious and the unconscious, but he also had these sensors and uh, whatever. Anyway, that was a about a year when I got attached to this McCulloch, and somewhere I wrote that maybe a hundred years from now he will be the seen as the greatest 20th century philosopher, and along with Russell and a few people like I know that in the 1950s and 60s, for example, the National Institute of Health had 10-year fellowships. It was mostly five-year fellowships, but it had quite a lot of money where if you had a young person who had made some important accomplishment, you could say, well, we'll give you a grant for 10 years. That was sort of the maximum I ever saw, but there were lots of five-year grants. That's gone now, I think, on the whole, and people have to write a new proposal every year to get there money renewed. So when I was a young student or a young professor, there were places like Bell Labs. I think I mentioned this the other day, but uh, when John McCarthy and I spent one summer at of 1952 at Bell Labs, they told us that we uh, should work on something that might take 40 years, not work on anything that. You could do sooner because theirs was a laboratory uh, designed for looking at those kinds of issues. The telephones themselves were designed to last 40 years, those black shiny things with the dial, and we still have one in the next room, I think, but there's very little of that today, maybe a few institutions like the Rockefeller Foundation and private institutions can, can do more of that. Polaroid Land tried to set up one with the Polaroid money but, and it still exists, I'm not sure that it, it had enough funding to look at that kind of time horizon. But anyway, there were a lot of them in, in those early days. And also the universities had that idea, and they were expanding still in the, the 1960s. Now they're pretty compressed, and professors are living longer, and there are fewer jobs in universities for, for young researchers, so things are a little tighter now.
1: What was he like, then, to be with? I mean, well, oh, The
0: amazing thing about him was that, you know, he makes movies. Uh, and uh, Super Bowls had just come out. And so I had a pocket full of Super Bowls, and we were walking along, and I took one out and started bouncing it, and Stanley was just completely entranced, and he grabbed the Super Bowl and he bounced it, and went way up and then he threw it over a house and ran around and caught it back and for the next 10 minutes it was nothing but Super Bowls. But the part that amazed me was that we, we kept walking around this place and t- talking and he kept bringing out this 35 millimeter, ca- I think it was an Argus or something, a little cheap, when he's always taking pictures. And I'm thinking... This movie maker actually likes taking pictures. There's something wrong with this picture. I was interested in that, trying to design a machine that would collect a lot of experience and then make predictions about what was likely to happen next. And so the, this thesis ends up with that, a little bit theory about that, but then (coughs) I decided that that was really the wrong way, or a wrong way, to think about thinking, and I think in 1956, or was it 54, I'll have to look it up again, Uh, another friend of mine named Ray Solomonoff started to produce a theory of how to predict, make predictions from experience based on a completely different set of ideas, uh, based on probability theory and more important, based on Alan Turing's idea about universal machines. And Solomonoff's idea was that basically the best way to make a prediction is to find the simplest Turing machine that will produce a certain phenomenon. Uh, now, there's no systematic way known or in fact it may be impossible to find the simplest Turing machine that produces a certain result, but still this is a wonderfully important idea about the foundations of probability and about how one could build very intelligent machines. So. Uh, after I got this insight from Solomonoff, I stopped working on neural nets entirely because I felt that was a bottom-up approach. And one really couldn't design a machine to do intelligent things unless one had some sort of top-down theory of what it is that, what kind of behavior that machine should have. Once you have a clear idea of What it is to be a smart machine, then you can start to figure out well, then what kinds of machinery could support that and what kind of machinery would it take to do that? And then at the end of a rather long path, we could ask and how could we use neurons or things like we find, like the cells we find in the brain, to produce these functions? I think it was the thread of saying, how can we? How can we make science fiction more real? How can we make space travel uh, so economical that uh, right now only a billionaire can go on a ride? Or I, think, I think you can go into space for about 20 million dollars. I forget. You know what the current price is. But the Russians will take you up to their their station our station. I'm not sure whose station it is. Right now, the Americans are retiring the shuttle, and we have no way to visit our space station except to pay the Russians presumably some huge price to go up on one of their rockets. Claude Shannon had been uh, working at Bell Labs in Murray Hill, New Jersey, and I forget how we became acquainted, but in the summer of 1952, when I was uh, in the middle of graduate school at Princeton, in fact, uh, we got invited, John McCarthy and I, who was also a graduate student, uh, to spend the summer uh, working with Claude Shannon on theories of computation and things like that. This is before there were were hardly any computers in the world in 1952, but uh, somehow that connection was made and we hit it off because both Shannon and I were uh, addicted to making interesting new mechanical devices and we both had erector sets and mechanosets which enable a child to build pretty complicated machinery in a few minutes and uh, so I think the reason that Shannon and I got along so well was that we had pretty similar mathematical interests but we were also interested in mechanical gadgets and I remember one day we were trying, I was trying to assemble something by pushing a wire into Uh, something, and I couldn't figure out how to get it to go through all that little turns and things. And Shannon said, that shouldn't be hard, it's as easy as pushing a string. And it's sort of characterized this problem in a way that has always stuck in my mind. For Some problems are hard because they're just terribly complicated, and some problems are hard just because… It's not in the nature of the thing that it can be done at all. Here's H.G. Wells with this book of thirty or forty little stories, each of which has some amazing idea, like instantaneous transmission of matter or or whatever. But I ran out of those, and just at the time when there was no more good— Aldous Huxley was another one, Brave New World— just when I had read all the classics, of which there were only about ten or twenty, then uh, another, an Isaac Asimov appears, or Anna Robert Heinlein, 1940. And uh, that renewed my interest, and these people also had short stories and longer ones with new ideas about possible new sciences and new ways of looking at things. and. Uh, The end result of that is that generally I read very little except science fiction and science. Uh, Every now and then I try to read a novel but to me all novels are the same. They're about a bunch of not very interesting people who make some mistake and their life gets very complicated and uh, at the end they uh, either find a way to to get better or they get killed or whatever. And uh, it seems to me when you've read 10 or 20 novels, you've read them all. But in the world, so their general literature is not general to me. It's almost all the same, whereas science fiction is the opposite. And each writer tries to make something completely different. So it doesn't have Agatha Christie's, who write 50 wonderful stories that are almost the same. A little clue, but they try to have a big idea that... But then, by some kind of accident, also I happened to meet those people. So unlike most science fiction readers, uh, Isaac Asimov lived not so far away and uh, I finally met him and I forget how I met Theodore Sturgeon and Robert Heinlein and Arthur Clarke, but uh, they all became friends of ours. And so that was my community, mostly people interested in science and psychology and physics and so forth, but also the David Brin and Werner vinge and Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov, the people who were writing the most imaginative. In fact, Arthur Clarke himself lived upstairs in the third floor for a period when he was loafing in America for some reason. So there was an interesting decade in which artificial intelligence started with very advanced things that most people considered hard and difficult, but weren't. And we're still not at the stage—this is 60 years later, 50 years later anyway, there's no machine that in any uh, deep sense understands why you can pull something with a string but not push it. Of course the answer is that once the string is straight, it's, its length can't change, so the object has to follow it or the string breaks. But if you go this way, the length can change because the thing can curl up and it doesn't take any force to push a loop and every child every normal child understands that sort of thing very well but to this day no computer that i know of no program understands that much about elementary maneuvering in, in the real world one problem in the progress of artificial intelligence is that Uh, most researchers got stuck with this sort of problem. They tried to build robots that could do everyday things. So here you have this strange situation where in 1961 uh, robots, or rather computers, can solve mathematical problems that only very advanced students can do. Uh, Now if you look around the world you see robots trying to solve problems that every baby can that four-year-olds, three-year-olds can speak a lot of language, they can build houses with blocks. Uh, we don't have any robots that are, have the kind of general physical competence that a two- or three-year-old has. And I think the joke is that if those researchers would simulate the robots with stick figures, instead of building actual physical ones with motors, progress would be much faster. Because if you have a simulated robot, then one computer can support 20 students trying different experiments with it. Because a typical computer today could have as many as 50 or 100 different terminals with, because the computers are all timeshared today and they can serve dozens or hundreds of customers. If you build a physical robot in a laboratory, if you visit a robotics laboratory, you'll find that there's usually one or two of the latest machine. It's only working uh, three hours out of every 24. It's usually broken or someone's improving it. So only one student at a time is doing some experiment that takes six weeks instead of five minutes. But people feel it's not real if it's just a picture of the robot. I think they've it's a community that has sort of strayed by mistaking a certain one kind of reality for another it's uh it's an interesting thing that they don't see the cost of confining yourself to a non-time-shared machine I think something like The society of mind theory is necessary if you're going to try to understand anything like human intelligence. Just as you need some theory like that to understand any aspect of biology, because consider any animal. An animal is made of organs, liver and pancreas and stomach and lungs and heart, and each of those systems has evolved to be good at some particular way of doing something or some particular function or solving some particular problem. Of course, they're all related to survival, but that doesn't mean that the animal has a survival instinct. That's a wonderful paradox. Many people say, well, the important thing about a living thing is that it has a survival instinct. and that's why it eats to stay alive and that's why it reproduces so that the species... But uh, there really isn't any survival instinct. They're just a collection of mechanisms, all of which uh, help to solve problems in different situations. And it seems to me it's the same with the mind, that in order to survive or whatever, uh, you have to solve and deal with different situations, and each situation involves some collection of problems to solve. So a successful animal, or the product of an evolution, is almost, when it's successful, is to develop a society of different methods for dealing with situations. One problem with my field is that People publish experiments where the machine does succeed in learn, apparently learning something, maybe really learning, perhaps. But they don't publish failures when they say, well, we tried to get this machine to distinguish between cats and dogs, and we had 4,000 pictures, and it didn't do much better than chance. Uh, we never see papers published, or hardly ever. And so, there's something a little bit wrong. In physics, you win a Nobel Prize if you can show that uh, some old theory isn't quite right. In artificial intelligence, uh, you might lose the company that's paying for your research if you publish a failure. And so uh, that's another reason why we we need more institutions that uh, are not based on uh, Quick payoffs. One problem that we, I hope we'll have to face is that people can continue to live longer and longer. So let's look at the longevity situation at the moment. And it's pretty interesting because in the last 60 years or so, since penicillin and things like that, which go back to the 1940s, the average lifespan of a person (coughs) in the so-called developed countries has been increasing roughly at one year every four, or three months per year and so forth. So if you take the 60 years since 1950, people are generally living 15 years longer, which doesn't seem like very much. But the difference between 75 and 90, uh, that sort of life expectancy, and that ought to keep increasing as medical discoveries are made, and there's a big difference in the range of predictions about that, so so that some optimists predict that there will be huge increases. Other pessimists think that we may be reaching the limit of the easily controlled diseases and degenerative conditions. And the fact is that uh, virtually no one has lived past the age of 120, just two or three people in recorded history have gotten to 123. And that doesn't seem to be changing, but of course the records aren't very good and one doesn't know. But I think it will change and that um, longevity probably uh, will grow and that's very nice. To this day you can find computers that can do many specialized things like making airplane reservations or uh, calculating the rate at which two chemicals will react or uh, solve various kinds of physics problems, other scientific things or economic ones. But there are no programs that could read a simple story, like an Aesop's Fable, and say something about uh, what's the moral of this tale or uh, what kind of person would be pleased to hear that story and who would be annoyed or uh, just generally there's no computer program that knows anything much about people or the practical objects. in the real world. And then many years later, uh, another student appeared named Push Singh. And for the first time again in a decade, I was working closely, and he was a great programmer. And um, we had a partnership of developing this emotion machine class of theories. The trouble is, he unexpectedly, suddenly died. And so uh, right now I'm in a situation where I don't have a single major collaborator, which is uh, a little bit strange because it takes, if I get an idea, it usually takes too long to explain it to a stranger. So uh, I just have to uh, write an essay or something. So I think I'm, sort of hoping that someone will turn up again sometime. And I have a couple of possible candidates who might be good collaborators. So there's a downside to being partners. If one of them disappears, you have to find another one. He was in charge of a computer called SEAC which is the Bureau of Standards Eastern Automatic Computer. I forget who had designed this this machine, but this machine had an actual dynamic memory, mercury delay lines. In fact, put a pulse of sound into a pipe and it would take a fraction of a second to go around this long (coughs) liquid path of mercury and you could put maybe 500 zeros or ones into that thing, so it it was moderately fast. And there were four of these machines made for different places. And that's the first computer I ever programmed because… Uh, why am I having trouble remembering his name? Russell Kirsch, because Kirsch sat me down at a desk and said I couldn't get up till I had written a program for the SEAC. So I wrote a program which actually recognized the shape of a couple of graphical letters. And uh, Russell Kirsch, in fact, wrote some of the very first graphic programs for any computer, including a little picture of a person's face. So I didn't actually touch a computer again till maybe 1956 when um, there were, at last, some real computers. And I wrote a couple of programs for the one out at RAND. Yes, I remember there was one intelligence test that I took some time when I was a little child. And this person would ask different questions, and one of the questions was, there's a round circular field and there's something lost in it, how would you find it? And one way would be to, I've, to go to the center and spiral out. And, but I must have thought of that and, but I didn't like that because then you would cross your path that you came in. So I said, oh well, you could do it by going like this on one side back and forth and then you go around over to here and go back and forth this way and you come out. And. Then later the experimenter said, well, that wasn't the best answer, you should do this. And I realized that whoever had designed the the answers didn't realize that you should take a much more complicated path that keeps you from crossing yourself. So then I wondered about how intelligent are the people who make these tests. But it's nice that they put geometry and a lot of tests are just verbal.